So a person who is uh, looking at an artwork is literally has the space to be reminded that they too can have that agency in their life. And I think that is actually one of the greatest gifts that art can give people is this reminder that they are they're born free. This is the Latitudes Podcast, the voice for art from Africa, and I'm your host, Rafilu Mpakanyane. Powered by I2 Art Insurum, Season 1 of the Latitudes Podcast explores new ways of accessing and thinking about the contemporary visual arts from Africa, while also building a robust archive of thought leadership. Are you an art enthusiast or collector looking to safeguard your valuable assets? Look no further than I2 Art Insurum. With the company's unique understanding of both the art world and the insurance industry, I2 is equipped to handle the distinct risks associated with insuring your acquisitions. Whether your pieces hold aesthetic, historic, investment or sentimental value, I2 has you covered. Visit i2.co.za or contact your broker for more info. I2 Art Insure is an authorised financial services provider. This episode's guest is educator and researcher in the arts, Valerie Kabov. Valerie is most notable as the director of First Floor Gallery in Harare, Zimbabwe. She's the co-founder of the African Art Galleries Association, as well as a writer and an art critic. In this interview, we look at how a once-in-a-lifetime invitation from a friend led to her making Zimbabwe her home. Valerie traces the roots of her passion for art, and she locates the beneficial outcomes of ensuring that art is available to all. We cover everything from politics to the free market to commitment to purpose and so much more. Valerie is a fantastic conversationalist and a fiery and compelling thinker. So without further ado, let's get into it. Valerie, you and I are here today to talk about your work and your journey in the world of arts and education and also just to get a sense of Valerie the person as much as possible, your life's work, your life's mission, but the things essentially that have taught you lessons on which you still lean on and spur you on to more action and greater action as well. So that is the purpose of our conversation today. And thank you so much for making the time. I do appreciate it. Thank you, Rafael. Thank you very much. <laughs> An absolute pleasure. Valerie, when one lands on your website, Valerie Karbov, the first thing I see is, uh, first of all, an image. And then next to that is a text that reads, what if art really was for everyone? What prompted that text to be the part of your landing page? First of all, the website is desperately out of date, but I still hold on to that phrase is that for me, it's really a, a personal ethos. It's not, for me, it's not a question. I, it's something that I genuinely believe that art is for everyone, partly because it is, I believe, like through research and through my personal history that Art is something that is a part of us as humans rather than it's not a social construct, it's a human construct. Humans in every society, in every culture on the planet have made art. And this means that art fulfills 
fulfills a function in our human experience, which predates class, which predates race, which predates any other kind of formal organization. Humans have been making art since they were human, and that is extraordinary. Also, if new kind of uh, research, we're only just at the start of studying the human brain neuroscience, but there's already enough evidence to show that as babies were born with an aesthetic impulse, this ability to be drawn to things that are beautiful. And that is also really extraordinary. It shows that that really it is something that we're born with, this leaning towards things that I also call art the the essential uselessness because we don't we need it. It is it does not appear to fulfill any survival need in us. Art will not keep you warm. Like in what I often say, painting will not stop a bullet, right? It's mm. just a point of humility. However, if it is always with us in every culture, in every society, that means there is an essentiality to this thing that appears to be not doing anything, anything that fulfills that Maslow hierarchy of needs, right? It's not there. Yeah. It's not food. It's not shelter. It's not companionship, Right. And yet it is essential. And for me, that is really, and being able to be, so it's part of, kind of part of the things that I, part of my ethos and mission is to share that, that understanding that art is for everyone that, you know, because if art is not part of your life, then in some way you're missing out on something that makes you human and it's Mm. a gift. And I've been privileged to have been born into this gift, right? Like in a family and in a space where I could take that gift for granted. And then so when you grow up and you go into the world, you realize that not everyone has the benefit of this extraordinary, then this becomes part of that mission to share that. You've said something that I that I chuckled at just now, which is art or painting can't stop a bullet. But I was doing some reading this weekend about just... I guess the vagus nerve and the sort of the parasympathetic nervous system and the function of beautiful things in one's life and what it tells your body, your mind, that when you see something beautiful that is aesthetically pleasing to you, it does something to your body and your mind to say, okay, this is a moment where you don't have to be in fight or flight mode, whatever that might look like in your life or in your circumstances. And you can get a respite, right? That is amazing. And so it might not stop a bullet, but mm. think about our collective trauma just from the last three years alone or four years alone since COVID, never mind just human, the human condition and human history and society in 2024 mm. on this day. <laughs> I think I think that is brilliant. That's why I was that's why I was saying we're only just starting to learn about yeah. our bodies and how we perceive, which is why I always had a problem with people saying, Oh, this is merely aesthetic and that beauty is somehow superficial. Beauty is, is essential. There's a reason it exists in our lives. It's we just don't know enough about it yet. And so to reduce people's enjoyment of beauty to somehow being less less meaningful is deeply wrong we so yeah no i 100% agree with you that it is for me art is also something that is a space of spirituality and it is a form of spiritual practice that is not that is secular right that is not Absolutely. attached to a specific religious tradition or a set of dogmatic beliefs it is a space where we commune with the universe and it gives us that space of quiet 
and a reflection where, you know, we are empowered. So one of the things I also like to say is that art reminds us that we're all born free and we're born to be free, right? So we live in a world where so many of our actions are circumscribed by convention, rules, and obligations. And yet somebody who makes art does it entirely of their own volition. And it's a product of absolute freedom, right? No one told them what to do. No one told them how to do it, with the exception of commissions, which we won't get into right now. (laughs) But but in general, so a person who is uh, looking at an artwork is literally, has the space to be reminded that they too have, can have that agency in their life. And I think that is actually one of the greatest gifts that art can give people is this reminder that they are they're born free and then they have choice. Even if everything in their life tells them that they don't, they still do. They still Absolutely. have that, that their soul, that they're born on this earth to actually be free and not yeah. to slotted into a machine of society in this way and you're not your family you're not your family role and obligation you're not you're not your job description you are you and what does that mean is you have a choice to be you what you do with that choice once you so art is not there to tell you what to think or what to do art is there to remind you that you have freedom and then what you do with that freedom is entirely up to you and i think that's just an extraordinary gift if done right that's the actual gift as someone who is not fully entrenched in the art world or the visual arts world, but has always had a deep appreciation for it, the way I relate to what you're saying is that I've had so many instances where you watch someone who's extremely talented or you look at that work and you need to understand what it is or how it comes about that a human being can create something like that or paint something like that or use their voice in this way. And you have almost this sort of it's not even professional envy because that's not your job or your vocation, mm-hmm. but you're like, good God, man, <laughs> I need to mm-hmm. get to the heart of what it is that can synthesize a person's thoughts, impulses into this output because it's gorgeous. It's a beautiful, it's, it's something that I need in my life as well. So it's, it's very, very interesting how you um, articulate the por- the place and the importance of art in, in the human, in human life. But Valerie, something that you said uh, earlier on about your own relationship with art and how you could, and I don't want to misuse or (laughs) put words in your mouth, how you could almost not take it for granted, but yeah, take it for granted in your own life and growing up. Could you talk to me about that? Talk to me about how your own artistic sensibilities were developed about the home or the the family structure that you grew up with that essentially allowed you to become or planted the seeds for the Valerie Kabov that we know now? Yeah, uh, well, I think, uh, I think taking it for granted, life is a long time. But to be honest, so I, I sometimes say that visual art is my, my mother tongue. It's my first language in many ways because I was, I'm a third generation art professional. So mm-hmm. my you know, so my grandmother, my maternal grandmother ran a gallery. And so to the extent that it was possible in the former Soviet Union, so she was the doyen of the Minsk art scene, which will mean very little to most people. But Belarus was actually quite a vibrant, vibrant artistic environment before World War II. And it's a Belarus is where 
is where Mark Chagall was born and grew up. It's also where was it, it there there was quite a like a very strong artistic tradition in an art school and my and it just so happened that my grandmother and I actually don't exactly know how she got into it but she she was the director of the salon of the artists union in the Soviet Union because everything was was not privatized everything was state owned so this was the official salon otherwise known as a gallery and my grandfather her husband was also a practicing artist and as well as an architect and then so my my mother you know trained as a musician she is a musician and then my father although he started out as a as an engineer by the time i was born he was already like very enmeshed in the art scene and was uh, starting to write art criticism so by the time so their whole social life and environment was very deeply enmeshed in the arts and also at a time in the the soviet history which was the the 70s it was a détente as it was a slow period so art was always considered both progressive and slightly dangerous and politically because freedom of speech issues so i was also raised with the conception that being in in the art world and part of art was also slightly something risky something that was about taking risks but also something that had a very fervent ethos of doing the right thing mm. so for me the idea of ethics and art were always deeply enmeshed that when you are when you are working in art you should be doing something that is just and something that is really important and honest and that is integrated into your value system so it's not and it's not really something and because i grew up in a in a totalitarian communist state art was never associated with wealth or status it wasn't part of the class system so we were ideological outcasts as people in the bohemia were frowned upon and periodically oppressed generally that was just the, so you were doing something so in the art world you're doing something transgressive and you do it because you believe in something important and not because you're not doing it for status or money mm. or or kind of social capital as it were so when we emigrated to the west it became an upside down universe right so my in 1981 my parents came to australia and everything changed and all of a sudden you're an immigrant your bohemian interests are no longer so special because you have to figure things out and and something that i never really quite understood but as a result i said all right i you know like many people i wanted to go to art school because i started painting when i was 5 it was always i was painting i was going to exhibitions and then all of a sudden you have to be a student you have to be a migrant and so my i was pressured by my parents to do something meaningful professionally which is oh, always oh that word meaningful yeah or secure or something yeah. because your parents want you to to be stable and not just and your circumstances you know, have changed that's no yeah and but but when you're, I think by the age of 12, you have a fairly clear idea of who you are as a child. So even though my parents told me my circumstances have changed, I was like, I'm still a bohemian kid. What are you talking about? <laughs> I need to, so 
it, it being a teenager was a very tense period, but I ended up going to law school because I thought, fine, this is, <laughs> if this is what you want. And then after five years of studying law and economics in Melbourne, at Melbourne University, I, my father said to me, now you can go to art school if you want. And I said, are you insane, dad? I've just spent five years being broke. <laughs> you know, I can't do this anymore. I need a job, right? Yeah. And that's the trap. That's the trap. I practiced, I practiced law internationally for about, for quite a few years. So I would say like in total for about 15 years. Uh, but at the same time, I moved to London. I worked in Moscow. And for me, it, art was always close. I was always still going to art galleries. I continued painting. And, and I started developing some ideas. You realize that you turn, make certain turns in your life and nothing is really you – you don't want your life to be wasted. So at a certain point, I came to a conclusion that I really need to get back to art. But mm. then I already had experience as a, an international business lawyer – with emerging markets and emerging economies. And I really uh, was interested in what emerging artists were doing. And I just, when I moved back to Australia in the late 90s, and and it became part of, I started thinking of how do I craft a life and an idea of being, working in art, but utilizing the experience that I already have, both being a, yeah, can I push back? And by push back, I say this in this in the weakest and, and friendliest way. The idea, because uh, yes, being stable and having that fallback plan is absolutely the trap. But please tell me that somewhere, somehow, in your gut, you had a sense of how economics and law would eventually aid you within your pursuits and interests in the creative industries. Was there an inkling? So. I don't think it was... In the way you described it just now. Well, I mean, I will tell you what actually happened. So, I mean, I kept trying to get back to art and it was very difficult because, uh, you know, again, I was dealing... I've come up with quite a number of... You know, it's not so much of a gut feel. It's it's more of you see the world in a different way now, right? Mm. You realize that you have very practical skills and having traveled a lot, having been... Having worked with very large organizations, you have... a, a a better insight as to the possibilities and opportunities, right? It just, uh -huh. that's what you have, right? And so what I realized is that I realized very early on that art can be an investment. And I thought of what can we do to improve the life of emerging artists? So for me, emerging artists and the real life of artists was always very important and meaningful because we're also raised with this idea culturally that artists should always be broke and starving. And I just railed against that idea. I'm like, that is Absolutely. just deeply wrong. And mm -hmm. so I thought, well, what can we do about it? How can we create meaningful and practical pathways to improve the lives of artists? That became the essential kind of vision of what can make without having to sacrifice quality without having to because also it's also looking at that kind of communist background where you know yes i grew up in a totalitarian regime but we had socialized healthcare like there was free healthcare free education free like virtually free sort of uh, housing right? Everything was subsidized and socialized. Yes, everyone was very poor. Everyone was really struggling. But at the same time, there was a minimal, there was a minimal standard of what everyone could rely on. And also 
regardless of what your profession was, is that you had something. Yeah. It's like you were, actually it was illegal to be unemployed in the Soviet Union. That was really, yeah, because, <laughs> yeah, it's really funny. Yeah. So everyone had to have an occupation. Everyone, everyone was entitled to some sort of uh, living and productivity. And so that kind of ethos that uh, it doesn't matter, that you should never not have a social net that, it, you know, that everyone who works hard and is good at what they do should be able to make a living. Right. Yeah. And that so to me, that was a central ethos. If you're good at what you do and you work hard, then you should be okay. Regardless. Yeah. Why should a mediocre accountant feel, have a comfortable life when a brilliant artist can't? And that's a question. That's actually, that's a social question. I, I I'm a firm believer in the universal basic income. So we can just, yeah. you know, write that off right now <laughs> but then you're right there was a trap where you're stuck with a salary and it takes so it took a life-threatening event for me I had to have emergency surgery where I potentially could have died and yeah. these life-changing moments that were you think oh my god I could have died potentially this, once you realize that your life has some sort of finality you think I think that's the universe telling me that I better do something yeah. Right. And, 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 and sorry, just to interject, it's the universe telling you to do something radical and something that's essentially been hounding you. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. been there all along. It's been it's been on your mind. And how long can you ignore yourself? You know, I mean, I remember being in my late twenties and just thinking, what is it that I'm actually born to do? And because I've been practicing sort of law and everything, and then after meditating and meditating. And it just came to me that it's art. And I was it was really disappointing because I thought, but that's ridiculous. It's been there all along. It's just been sitting there. It's been in front of my face since day one. And I was I'm like, I guess once it's there, then you have to make a decision. And it's harder to make a decision, you know, not to have a plan B. And yeah. that's what I say to the best way not to actualize your plan A is to have a plan B. So then after my life-threatening sort of surgery, I immediately enrolled in a master's like literally I rang up Sydney University and I asked I them that. about the master's <laughs> program and yeah. turns out that the application forms were due in the following week like it was like that and I just looked at whether I qualified and I did and I just sent in my material I said this is it I have to do it and then literally within within a couple of years I just got I got to a point where I was also I was still working part time as a lawyer to support myself, and then a point came where I just didn't believe in it anymore. Where you find I got to a point where every time I walk into the office, I felt like I was, you know, destroying my soul a little bit, and I just said I can't do this anymore. And again, great financial crisis around two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, really supported. That'll do it. Yeah. yeah, it really helped. And I've always wondered because I, by that stage, I'd spent so much time working with artists, talking to artists. I was writing a newsletter by that stage about art reviews. And what I discovered is artists are some of the luckiest people that you meet. And I just didn't know they were always traveling. Something always happened to support their lives. And I just you're just so responsible. How do you even have children, right? You, you don't have a reliable income. <laughs> Somehow that did faith in that universe and the strangest thing is the moment that I committed myself to doing what I'm meant to be doing the universe just opened up and you know, started delivering weird 
and strange opportunities that yeah. endorse your path, right? So once you're on the right path, and for me, that path is art, but I think in anyone's life is the universe comes to meet you. I, I, I really firmly believe that the universe will come to meet you if you commit to the path that yeah. you're, that is the right path for you. And that's been the case so far, right? So I do my life, I just follow a path. We continue our conversation after the short break. David Crute Projects has locations in Johannesburg and New York and is an alternative arts institution dedicated to encouraging an awareness of and careers in the arts and related literature and media and to promoting contemporary culture in a dynamic, collaborative environment. In Johannesburg, they have exhibition project spaces and an adjacent bookstore located at 151 Jansmatz Avenue, Parkwood. They also have a printing workshop at Arts on Main, the major arts hub adjacent to downtown Johannesburg. Visit www.davidcruteprojects.com to find out more. Valerie, you're stepping into your own, finally into your dream, your vision, your creative and artistic impetus and melding it with your experience, professional experience so far in law and economics is quite a fascinating one. So something happens to you when you visit Zimbabwe for the first time, when you visit Harare for the first time. And uh, as you say in your CV or one of your biographies that I read online, this was supposed to be a once in a lifetime thing. And ostensibly you'd go back to writing about art and critiquing and your life in in Melbourne, in Australia or in Sydney, in Australia, you'll tell me, correct me. But Something clicked into place when you got to Harare and I guess that bohemian instinct was now finally just (laughs) fired up even more and that activist instinct was really Mm. set into work mode. Talk to me about the experience of touching down in, in, in Zimbabwe for the first time and making a very big decision to in fact stay there, to work there, to make that your home base and do some really interesting work at First Floor Gallery in Harare, and then I guess an artist-owned space, which is it still the first or the, oh, sorry, is it still the only one of its kind as we speak? So just like a couple of corrections here. I was, I was based in Paris when I was working on a doctorate, mm-hmm. when I first came to Harare. And yeah, my plan was to sit for the rest of my life was to sit in a cafe and drink coffee and write little criticisms. That was just because <laughs> that was the plan. And so I had a friend who was filming a documentary in Harare who visited me in uh, Paris and he said, I'm coming back to Harare. Do you want to come and visit? And I thought, I've never been to Africa. This is incredible. I'm never going to have a friend in Africa ever again. So <laughs> let's do this. But I was mindful. I said, look, my doctoral supervisor will think this is a very weird thing to do to take a trip out, out without any particular Absolutely. purpose. So why don't you organize a talk for me, for me to do a talk somewhere about my thesis, right, my yeah. research? And he said, no worries. And he organized for <laughs> me to give a talk at the National Gallery of Zimbabwe. Now, like, I had no idea. Like, I had, if I checked the 
travel advisory for Zimbabwe in 2009. I would never have gotten on the plane, but I'm lazy yeah. like that. So I didn't bother. But it was so for those listeners who are not aware, in 2009, Zimbabwe is just emerging from the hyperinflation crisis where we had yep. 1 trillion percent inflation and there was incredible food shortages and queues and prices changing at the rate of minutes. And when I arrived, they just dollarized. So things were ostensibly back to normal, although you could still see people paying for combi rides with what are what then known as bricks and the, these piles Huge of Huge wads. Yeah. yeah. yeah no, they were literally like massive. And I don't think anyone counted them anymore. You're just going, mm. yeah, this is what it's worth. And, and everyone was complaining. I was trying to tell me about how terrible things were. They had queues and food shortages. And I'm like, you're describing my entire childhood in the Soviet Union. I really mm. don't know what you're complaining about. I was like, oh, this is... And also, so in preparation for giving my talk at the National Gallery uh, on my first visit, I started just trying to get some local context and visiting some artists, trying to understand what was going on because... I was I'm used to talking to artists. It's my it's my tribe. It's my natural environment. What I realized is that there weren't any artist front spaces in her area and there there didn't seem to be any experimentation. But even though you could tell there were artists who were enthusiastic and anxious and young and and I was trying to understand well what is happening here? Why isn't there an artist run space? And Marcus Gura, who is my partner in the gallery and co-founder was involved in music and he was one of the people I met and he suggested he sympathized with the plight of artists not having space for experimentation with the sort of a similar situation for young musicians. And he was working with musicians at the time and still is. And so he suggested that he has a space in his office downtown that is also co-inhabited by tailors and maybe we can work something out and so I brought a yeah. couple of artists to see the space and I just thought it was 30 square meter room and free real estate is free real estate and I think it was one of those moments in a sense there's a kind of a Buddhist expression that somebody shared with me many years ago saying that make small decisions very carefully and make large decisions lightly and yeah. you know studying gallery was one of those large decisions made lightly where you go, this is what's happening. Let's do it. You don't think about what are the pragmatics would, if anyone, if I'd known anything about Zimbabwe, I would never have done it. It just didn't make it. It was one of those. It just seemed like this is a moment. It was just like, this seems like the right thing to do. Let's do it. And without delving too deeply. And then, and then the evolution of the space was more of a process of now we're here, how do we make this work? But and, and learning one step at a time, which is why I call our practice model as a gallery an environmentally responsive model, that an artist-centered environmentally responsive model. That is to say, we put the artist at the center of everything we do. It's what the artist need. Uh, what does the artist want? What do they want to achieve? What does their talent require? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it means healthcare. Some, yeah. You know, sometimes That's it means materials. Sometimes it means mental health support. Sometimes it means family counseling. Sometimes it means helping ch- their children get a school. 
what the art so if you put the artist so at the center of your practice even it becomes a fundamentally different way of progressing mm. it's clearly a partnership and you you are there along every part of an artist's journey to facilitate their ability to continue being or growing into their role as an artist and talk to me about how your view of and your understanding of the impact of the uh, the practice has evolved over this time. Because as someone who's fully enmeshed and entrapped in the system of capitalism, <laughs> and as a geriatric millennial, uh, we are always wanting to know, like, how are you going to scale this? How are you going to reach more? How are you going to get bigger, better, faster, more nimble, whatever it might be? And those are probably things you don't even worry yourself with. I'm genetics. I don't worry about these things. My definition of success is not predicated on, I think my definition of success is being able to wake up and do what I want to do every day. And I have enormous gratitude for that. Uh, I think it's extraordinary for me to be in the art world and for anyone in the art world to wake up every day, to do what you want and to have a roof over my head. That is an exceptional definition of success. That is so that's one. But in in terms of the practice of the gallery, so we grow with our so the two things here. One is we are we represent artists, so we're committed to a, a specific group of artists who share our philosophy and who share our commitment to themselves. Yeah. and their practice, right? So in a way, this is why people say, if you're not plan A, then we can't really work for with you because we're all plan A people. This is do or die for us. And if it's not do or die for you, then it's fine. It's just, this is not that kind of a place. And so it's an intense environment where, you know, we work extremely hard and we partner with artists who are that driven and that committed to their practice. In terms of scaling and capitalism, brilliant questions. So in terms of sales, we never oriented ourselves to as a local space because my personal background is as an international practitioner. I never felt that we could, I felt that the artists that we started working with and most of whom we continue working with and, and new artists we bring in, they have extraordinary talent. They're important to art history of the world, right? That's the grand ambition is that we work with artists. We have a group of artists and we work with artists who have something important to say to the whole world, not just to their community. And I don't dispute, there's some artists who are extremely important to their local community and their practices should be validated. But our position, and and this is, and it makes this is where my personal relevance is here. Is that my my background as an art historian? I feel that the artists that we work with have something really important to say to the whole world, and have the ambition to say it to the whole world. So if we're going to support them properly, we're going mm-hmm. to enable them and do everything that we can to give them that voice internationally and globally, and to have them validated. So that's the path. Yeah. So. The way we engage with capitalism, I think it's just you're like probably pretty much the the first person who's ever asked me that question, and yet that is at the crux of all a lot of the things that we do. Is how how does somebody who is fundamentally a Marxist who runs a who's working in a social enterprise essentially? It's very easy. So one of the first things that I experienced when coming to Zimbabwe is NGO culture, right? And NGO cultural funding. And what I realized is that that 
it is one of the most oppressive forms of neoliber- uh, neoliberal and neocolonialism that we have in Africa because yeah. all of this funding is fundamentally a form of oppression of, of freedom of speech because you have nice white people sitting in London or in Amsterdam telling Africans what they should be concerned with, right? So I had a very specific experiences of engaging with these NGOs and I was horrified also people are trying to people trying to teach Africans how to be business people or cultural entrepreneurs which is bullshit because in the west they have a fully fleshed out infrastructure and yet the African artist is supposed to be their own brand manager their own career developer sure. their own everything sure. and how they going and at the same time they have to they have to the only way that they can get money is by speaking to an issue that the nice white person has decided is good for them they're not allowed to have fun because they need to educate about violence or women's issues and i'm not saying those issues are not important i'm just saying that maybe the artist is not bloody interested maybe that's not the issue that is the true issue for them and but they but there's no way that they're going to get money for the issue that is interesting for me so for them so one of the first things that we did is to make it very clear that we will not take any con- conditional funding for the gallery and that was that no one if somebody wants to support us doing what we do they can support it but if they don't we will f- figure out a way of doing it ourselves and of course that involves sacrifice and then yeah. and pushing on create uh, protecting artists from the oppression of the west actually and that sort of cultural funding the other thing is we realized is that engaging with the market becomes a form of liberation because a you're diversifying a number of voices that are able to support you when you create that diversity and that's something that I argued in my master's thesis in Australia is that broadening the audiences for art means that no single voice gets to dictate anything to the yeah. artist and that creates more freedom and secondly writing an invoice is way easier than writing a grant application and <laughs> oh my goodness yes <laughs> much easier much easier and you don't have to account sometimes uh, the horror is that you get say $5000 from somebody and then you've written a 20 page application then you have to write then they have to audit your accounts then they have to then you have to write a 90 page stupid report for $5000 and yet you can sell a painting and then the person is deeply grateful for owning something extraordinary and then most of the money stays with the artist and you are and and, that, and you're done right so yeah. in a way engaging with the market becomes a form of freedom and because we operate in a, a we our other philosophies take the money and run is once somebody pays you the money you do it you get to do whatever you want with it and what <laughs> we do is really important and our artists are buying houses sending children to school just building their lives and we don't have to apologize for that and so in a way we're using we don't have a choice of not to engage with capitalism but we can engage with it in a really conscious and moral way yeah Sure. Okay. So that that right there you've just taken us to church, to school, to everywhere and back and it's such a beautiful and an enlivening way to talk about and think about engaging with the global north and engaging with the market. And it puts me in mind of 
I think it was an Art Basel conversation that you had with Candice Brates and Zanella Moholy, exactly about that, whether African artists need to go overseas or go to move to European or American markets or countries, whatever, in order to be successful. And what you've done is in many ways ended that idea or rather say, give, given so many more, opened up and opened up that avenue and said, you can do all those things on your own terms. Staying home can also be done on your own terms, but the way in which you apply and think about how or why you're doing all these things is so essential and is the difference between being beholden <laughs> to where you get your money as opposed to being free. Mm. I think yeah. where money comes from is really important and how so pathways of capital, it's very important to be mindful because I remember when I was studying for my master's, speaking to a cultural economist, and he said, money is money. And, I'm, and I said, I absolutely disagree. Mm. Where money comes from, whoever, whoever pi- pays the pi- piper calls the tune. And so it's really, so some of the other issues that are very important, and also people paying the money should also consider who they're paying money to and how. So one of the, sure. so, some of the contemporary battlegrounds in African contemporary art, like the, for me, so again, a point of contrast is I really primarily see myself as an art critic and an art historian, but becoming an activist has meant on working in Zimbabwe has meant that I've had to focus on politics and economics uh, of the art market because of the justice elements to it. And this is where my disciplines also come to the fore. And so some of the very basic mathematics that we have since the kind of the arrival of African contemporary art on the international stage is that so many Western galleries have now picked up African artists. And the economics are very simple. So when somebody buys a work by an African artist from a gallery in New York, 50% of that money stays in New York and mm. pay taxes in New York. And I always say the pavements in New York, they're not so great, but they're better than yeah. pavements in Harare. Yeah. And so when somebody buys a work by an African artist from an African gallery, 100% of that money stays in Africa. And that is really important because the African gallery is invested in building up the infrastructure. We're invested. We spend money here on everything. So that money, we spend money on food here. We pay taxes here. We pay rates. You're employing people here. We employ people. We are deeply invested. And that, that income is crucial. And we're also making sure that the artist doesn't, is not incentivized to leave the country because once they leave, we're also losing the gray hairs. We're, so yeah. Some of the issues that we have, we are losing that know-how, the carrier of the pedigree that can be, can be carried on to younger generations. One of the things that I'm incredibly proud of across the board with Zimbabwean artists is that, that overwhelmingly they have stayed home. They're overwhelmingly that they're committed to living in Zimbabwe, building homes and studying and supporting younger generations of artists that I think is extraordinary. It's yeah. uh, Zimbabwe is a much more peaceful place. Some places, some countries don't simply don't have those options, right? This yeah. circumstances yeah. are harder. Yeah. But I still celebrate that validation. The economics are very important. And I often quote, and if you've read my writing, I often paraphrase Kwame Nkrumah as saying that you can win political independence, but if you haven't won economic independence, you haven't won. 
right? And I think legacy, that kind of uh, economic independence is what gives you the freedom, right? Especially because we can't, we still subsist in a capitalist world, right? This is how we exercise. After the break, we continue our conversation. Don't miss out on Strauss & Co.'s upcoming auction, Curatorial Voices, African Landscapes Past and Present. Spanning 175 years of visual landscape painting on the African continent, the sale promises to be an extraordinary convergence of work celebrating pioneering modernists and trailblazing contemporary artists. Latitudes has curated a section of the auction presenting several works by exciting Pan-African artists. The auction opens on the 5th of February, with a live virtual auction taking place on the 19th. If you're in Cape Town, be sure to visit Strauss & Co.'s newly renovated space in Woodstock up until the 19th of February to see this concept come to life. Or you can visit www.straussart.co.za to register, browse and bid. fascinated about how you have these conversations with uh, your partners with and whether it's international partners whether it's the cohort of artists that you're working with in Zimbabwe or whether you're on an international stage because sometimes you have the benefit of time that is an extended interaction with your emerging artists with sometimes you have 30 minutes or 20 minutes to give a keynote address. Sometimes you have maybe about an hour, like on a podcast like this. And it's very clear, Valerie, that you are thinking very deeply about art and justice, as well as in many ways, the sort of global, political and socioeconomic and you know, the international relations system that keeps us all together, that keeps us all enmeshed willingly, unwillingly, and helps some people thrive, other people, keeps other people subjugated, or can be utilized to everyone's benefit if we are on the up and up on what's actually happening. I'm keen to find out how you have these interests, I'm sorry, how you have these conversations with your artists and with as many people as possible, because of course, not everything can be conveyed or spoken about within a soundbite. And some things do take time. You wrote an article when you called Flight from Judgment, the Art Africa, an Art Africa article from 2017, where, you know, you do speak about the assetization of art. And it's a very, it's a short and concise article, but it's incredibly broad, like your interests. <laughs> and you point, you land on so many things. But it's exactly these ideas that you've been talking about, but also fundamentally how it is that artists speak to their own their own interests, their own survival, and their own health and vitality whilst working within certain systems. When do you know how to have these conversations with whom and how? <laughs> so I believe personally that art is a is a an intimate and one on one experience. And I think that we're not me. So music is, of course, a much more universal medium. But I always say that no one stands with whatever flashlights or whatever it is with lighters. We don't do stadium shows in the art world. We're not yeah. those people. So we, ha I think I have a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations. I think it's important to take time with artists. The idea that I have written about and I think about is cultural self-esteem is mm. how do you build up self-esteem in yourself 
so you were dealing because we started working with a lot of young artists and what you realize is that some of the horrors of colonialism uh, and especially in 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 southern africa in in settler colonies is the commitment to destruction and denigration of local cultures that has happened mm. and one of the issues for me in zimbabwe is that sort of the the anglophilia of so the the beauty of the zimbabwean independence project is extraordinary but at the same time there there wasn't sufficient uh, attention paid to the value of to how much destruction to local culture local religion local traditions has been done in through the colonial project because to understand how colonization how well thought out colonization was in terms of destroying people's self-esteem and their belief in their own uh, people and their own culture and how that continues to sabotage you generations beyond. So some of those issues are around, for instance, one of the first things that we did at the gallery, we stopped having guests of honor because mm. when we first arrived, there were, there'd usually be some kind of a German ambassador or something opening an exhibition. And for me, that was always very weird because the German ambassador doesn't know anything about art. So how can he be a guest of honor or honor anything? Why would you bring a white person? So we made the artists or the artist family as guests of honor. And that was very bizarre yeah. for artists. But we said, <laughs> no, but the only person who should be honored here is you, in fact. Yeah. And it took a while to register. And to be very committed to the idea of, of peerhood, that we're all yeah. peers. That we're, and also, to be honest, I guess it's sort of counterintuitive, but we, as a gallery, we always believe that we're in the service of the artist. That's the centrality. So we, so the artist has to become empowered just through that. And that is, it's a reversal of a paradigm that the artists have seen in Zimbabwe and I know also in other places where the gallerist is the boss. And I remember somebody, like one of our artists, Gresham Saimi, visiting him at the studio and in a taxi because I don't drive and I refuse to drive because I'm not a good driver. I don't want to take my life in my hands, but also I don't believe there's this kind of thing that where people attribute importance to people in a car. And yeah, I just find that ridiculous. And I'm not going to conform to somebody's expectation of me driving an SUV just so that you feel like you have a boss. And so Gresham was yeah. saying that his neighbor said, he said, what kind of a boss is that? <laughs> that turns up in a, in a cheap taxi to visit you. And he said, because it's not that kind of a boss. Yeah. Like, it's not a boss, right? It's because we're peers and we're friends. We share each other's troubles, right? Because our life is not easy, right? And yeah. and that kind of, and that, that makes it a meaningful partnership. And it doesn't mean that we're not aware that it, of inequality. We're not aware that certain privileges, I have a privilege of having an Australian passport. My travel of is course. way easier. But, but then you, I recognize, but, you, but I use that privilege for good. Do you know what I mean? So I've tried yeah. to create opportunities in a way that is meaningful. And, and so everyone, everyone is committed to using their... So our philosophy at the gallery, and I'll probably, probably have to round off, is also is that we might be cash poor, but we're all resource rich. There's this yeah. also a recognition that resources are much greater than than money, and that also goes back to being raised in a communist country. I was we're all extremely poor. Everyone earned the same thing, but I was raised th as a wealthy person, 
right? So my parents always believe that we are rich because we're rich in culture and education. And yeah. so as a person who is uh, rich, it's your job to help whoever you can. So it doesn't, so you being rich is a concept. It's not about how much money you have. So yeah. it's your ability to help the next person. It's about your value system. If you're, and that's the philosophy that has sustained us, that you're rich in relationships and friendships, right? So yeah. we're all, so if we build a, a rich family of friendship and goodwill, then we can grow. And this is, this is very much aligned with a, an incredibly beautiful African proverb that if you want to go far, let's go together. If you want to go yep. fast, let's go alone. We've taken yeah. a long way. We, yeah. We've never taken the fast way or the short way, but we're going together. And that is our philosophy. And this is, and that is our fulfillment as yeah. well to go together. Yeah. That's a beautiful word to use, fulfillment. It, it really is a gorgeous word to use. Uh, Valerie, I, d I did want to just, before I leave you, I'll say goodbye to you as you go off to do the amazing things and the important work that you do. I mentioned that I wanted to talk to you about audience engagement versus um, audience development or audience engagement and audience development, uh, especially within the context in which in, in Harare and Zimbabwe, where you're based. And this comes up quite often in uh, conversations around the creative arts industries here in South Africa as well. When we talk about those two things, or when you talk about those two things in your professional work, and of course, you've written papers about this and studied this, what are you talking about in a localized Zimbabwean context, but perhaps a broader African context? And what do you envision when we talk a blue sky um, situation? In, in my view, local audiences are of paramount importance like paramount they're the only true audience because they're the only mm. ones i always recount this episode so my partner marcus gore so he manages mokumba which is an international touring band like very well known but before they play any tour like absolutely before they play any tour with any new material they do a concert locally right uh -huh. with their local audiences because that is how they know they have something because those are the only people who genuinely get it who understand right and to me that as an example is that is the paradigm is that no one can no one can truly we all engage with art uniquely and individually but a local audience sees things that other people cannot possibly see sure. because they share the environment. They share the physical environment, the, the climate, and, as well as the cultural background. And so that truth is extraordinarily valuable to the artist. Now, we also understand that in our practice, we've understood this, is that we it, it's always been our ambition to build up local audiences and local engagement and local collecting audiences of economically. It's extremely important to build up local markets because they validate your work. But we also knew that it would be a really long process because, yes. and absolutely reasonably long process because you don't expect in Zimbabwe everyone's moment to start making money or building generational wealth started in 1980. In other places, people have waves. This is when they made money. Here we have, and 
point day one was then for everyone and that's pretty late in the day this is not 1957 for Ghana this is 1980 I remember 1980 as a child you usually and you can't expect people who still have who are concerned about how they're going to pay for school and healthcare and education to be concerned with things that are rely on disposable income and, and and a certain level of comfort you don't have an established middle class and that's fine. It takes two, three generations. So we believe that our objective is to build up an audience. So I guess audience engagement, audience, you know, so in terms of people who can appreciate, support, are interested in art, and starting with fellow creatives. Our space has always been open to people who are filmmakers, photographers, fashion designers, writers, and doing events around that because you're building a community of people and an environment where artists feel comfortable and understood and supported emotionally. Mm. And then eventually that leads to other things. So you create, you're building culture. You're building a yeah. culture in which art is validated and respected and, and contemporary art. And that's, I also need to acknowledge the fact that we are absolutely not the, not the first gallery in Zimbabwe and that pre a lot of things. So in a way, hyperinflation was wiped the slate clean for a lot of things. And so there's a lot of rediscovery that is happening now. And there were generations of artists that were extraordinary and really important that we're actually trying to reconnect with and rebuild that history. But there was a traumatic cataclysmic event in from 2006 to 2008, which sort of wiped the slate clean in some ways, and then things had to be rebuilt. And so there is a new generation of art supporters that is developing, which is extraordinary, and learning about the art world, and that is incredible. And what we're finding, which I always speculated about, I, I felt that when um, local collectors start buying art of Zimbabwean artists, they will be buying different works to works that are collected by non-African collectors. Mm-hmm. And I was absolutely correct. And it's mm-hmm. just blows and it's so extremely gratifying that people see different things and they appreciate them differently. And I think, and that actually goes to, for both, interestingly enough, not just collectors, uh, black collectors, but also uh, other color white Zimbabweans as well. They, they see different things and they appreciate work of the same artists who are really successful internationally, but they appreciate different facets of their work, which That's I right. find extraordinary really amazing and really meaningful and that means that and there's a sort of a sense of authenticity that means this is the most authentic Zimbabwean representation there right you get that conversation happening between the collector the between the audience and the artist that says we see ourselves in this and this means something and that is how you want the history of a place to be shaped through art because that's the and I find that really amazing because we really want to own that history in a really in a cogent way rather than cede that power to you know wealthy collecting institutions internationally because they're co- going to collect with their own eyes with their own taste in their own place but it won't be our place it won't yeah. be this space this time in this culture yeah. yeah so that that's how i see the role of audience
In many ways, you're also talking to that cultural self-regard that you touched on earlier on, but also that agency in creating one's own canon and one's own history and collecting and writing down one's own history in, in, in your own way, whether you're a collector or a curator or even a critic. Two last questions, Valerie. The kind of critic that you are and the kind of writer that you are, what is it that you find essential or life-giving or important in the work of an art critic that I guess in many ways we could do with more of? And this is in no way an invitation to cast any aspersions, but a more, yeah, a, a, a way in which we can appreciate those that, that do what they do. Art criticism is, has almost died as a discipline, I would argue. But in contemporary terms, we have a lot of art writers because sure. no one wants to be seen as a critic. Criticism means, uh, the way I define it, or the, historically, is a discipline and an expertise, right? Where you have studied something, you have learned a lot about it, and you have an ability to judge the merits of something, right? That's And we have dispensed with that in contemporary art. We have ceded that authority to the market, and I could go on talking about this for several more hours. I think that's problematic, but I also think that art history is a very long time and this too shall pass. But it is really important to recognize that some people do know something, right? Uh, it's not just about the price that is paid at auction. But one of the reasons that there's so many fakes in museums is because people who are working in museums now don't have that experience exceptional understanding of art history or study of art history. A degree in French or politics is not going to qualify you in art. It's just an understanding of how art is made, understanding of what artists do, understanding of what has been done before. And the context is really, that what gives you an idea. So the way, uh, you know, the way I see art criticism is the being able to put something in context and say, is this important to, how is this important? Why is it important? Or why is it not important to be asking mm -hmm. the question? There are two questions. Is it art or is it not? Is it good or is it not? Those are the things. It doesn't matter what And once you've answered those questions, be able to state why. Yeah, yeah. No, I, and From I can usually do that. That's what I hold myself usually. <laughs> But I can usually do I can tell, they say that joke where you can say, you can tell a pile of rubbish from an installation. That's the thing. That's the critical element. <laughs> but those are the things. Or whether or not that fire extinguisher is, in fact, in the show. But not to be fucked up. <laughs> but the way I write, I haven't written too much art criticism of late, but the way I approach art writing, uh, writing about art is to give, a, give an opportunity to the audience to have an insight and to enter the work and have their own, form their, have their own experience, right? To give. Mm. And I also my writing is in conversation with the artwork rather than about the artwork, right? It's saying, yeah. what is it, what is it prompting in me? What are the, what are the ideas that it's prompting in me? What are, what are the openings for entry that exist in that artwork? Yeah. What is the conversation yeah. that we can be having? Why is this conversation important? Right. And then, and sometimes just giving people clues or opening doors in a way that they may not anticipate, may not have anticipated, but also never ever speaking down to your audience. Always being respectful to your audiences is really important to me because, as I said, art really is for everyone. No one, you don't need a degree. Everyone is equally equipped with the capacity to have 
an amazing art experience. And all you have to do is just, you know, open them up to that possibility that they have, they already have the magic. They already have the skill to do that. And so those are the parameters is like being very respectful to your audience and and giving them agency, giving them space to have agency, to have their own experience with art. Yeah. Valerie, a couple of last question. What do you know for sure? What do I know for sure? I am. (laughs) 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 That's it. I I love it. You certainly are because if the sort of precondition for being is Mm. thinking, then plenty of thinking going on there and thinking deeply and thinking widely and thinking expansively. It's been such a joy to speak to you today. And yeah, it has been fulfilling. I think that's the most apt word for our conversation today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. What a way to spend a Monday morning, Griffillway. Thank you. Are you an art enthusiast or collector looking to safeguard your valuable assets? Look no further than I2 Art Insure. With the company's unique understanding of both the art world and the insurance industry, I2 is equipped to handle the distinct risks associated with insuring your acquisitions. Whether your pieces hold aesthetic, historic, investment or sentimental value, I2 has you covered. Visit i2.co.za or contact your broker for more info. I2 Art Insure is an authorized financial services provider. Thanks for listening to the Latitudes podcast, the voice for art from Africa. Please support us by liking, subscribing and sharing the podcast. Of course, we also welcome your reviews as these help other art enthusiasts find the podcast. The Latitudes podcast is hosted and produced by myself, Rafil Wembakanyane, for the Rare Event Foundry. Spike Valentine is on technical for DBO Media and a big thank you to the Latitudes team.